Welcome to Inside Medicine, a podcast for the intellectually curious and especially for those who want to get close to the truth in science and medicine. We have conversations with leading scientists, physicians, and innovators in the spirit of educating and inspiring you to take actions today that will benefit your long-term health. The future of medicine is here, and our goal is to bring it to you now. We hope you enjoy the show, and if you do, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Hi, I'm Jordan Schlain, founder of Private Medical, and today I'm pleased to introduce part two of two in our series on diet. In this episode, we're joined by our guest, Dr. Michelle Cardell, an obesity and nutrition scientist, registered dietitian, and the head of clinical research and nutrition at Weight Watchers. We'll uncover misperceptions about weight loss, including the truth about GLP-1 inhibitors, most commonly known under the brand names like Ozembic and Wagovi. We'll also discuss the science of lifestyle change, how to talk about weight and health with our children, and the challenges of weight management. Today's conversation will be led by Silicon Valley naturopathic doctor, Natalie Walsh, and co-hosted by our Miami-based physician, Dr. Tatiana Ivan. I hope you will find their conversation enlightening. Welcome to Inside Medicine, Michelle. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. And I'm Natalie Walsh, a naturopathic doctor with Private Medical in Menlo Park. And joining us today is Dr. Tatiana Yvonne, who's a family medicine physician in our Miami Beach office. Welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. We wanted to invite you here today, Michelle, because we were interested in talking to you about glucagon-like peptides, which have been a, f- a real focus uh, in the media. There's been a lot of buzz on in social media as well. We have patients who are taking these medications, and we just wanted to share more information with our audience about what we know about these drugs. I'm wondering if you can just give us an idea of what these medications are and what they do. Yeah, I mean, who knew that GLP-1s would would be so cool (laughs) at some point? Never would I have predicted that before. Uh, So GLP-1s, they are going to uh, slow down your gastric emptying, and they're going to affect your, your brain and your gut. And the overall effect is to help you feel fuller for longer and have decreased appetite. So that is a way in which it can be helpful for weight loss. And our patients might know these medications under the names Ozempic, Wagovi, um, Munjaro, semaglutide, liraglutide, saxenda, terzepatide. Those are all words for the same kind of group of medications. And where do we think that this excitement came around? It's, this is not actually a new class of drugs. What do you think has, has changed? What did we learn that was new? Yeah, so these GLP-1 receptor agonists are, you know, a type of medication that was originally developed to treat type 2 diabetes. But uh, as a kind of side effect, people started noticing that there was significant weight loss with these. And so um, there has been now many clinical trials conducted, and particularly with the semaglutide and terzepatide, which is the brand names Wagovi and Ozempic and Manjuro, like you mentioned, 
we see really significant weight loss such that with semaglutide, on average, we see about 15% body weight loss about a one-year period and on average 21% body weight loss at kind of in that same time frame with terzepatide. And just for comparison, you know, this is something I talk about with, with patients a lot, but what's the comparison there between, you know, kind of what percent of weight do people lose with diet and exercise alone versus versus these drugs? Like, how is it different? Yeah, great question. So on average, we're pretty happy with behavioral weight management programs if we see about 5 to 8% body weight loss over a one-year period. There are exceptions to that. For example, when studies have been done in things like acceptance-based therapy, we can see higher weight losses, but on average, you see that 5 to 8% body weight loss over a one-year period. So these, these medications are really taking weight loss to a whole other level, and that's why they've been giving, given the name of kind of like these game-changer medications. And then how does that compare to some of the um, you know, bigger steps some people might take for managing obesity? How does it compare to something like, uh, like surgery, like bariatric surgery? Yeah, so bariatric surgery, on average, we see about 25 to 30% body weight loss. So for the first time, medications are getting close to really paralleling what we see with bariatric surgery. Uh, so it's it's a really exciting time in the field. Uh, we have a variety of treatment options that we can offer patients now, you know, whether it's behavioral weight management, pharmacotherapy, surgery, or devices. Uh, across the board, you know, the behavioral weight management is going to be the foundation across all those treatment modalities, but it's great that we're expanding the tools in the toolbox so that way we can provide more evidence-based care and reach more patients who need it. And Michelle, what is what is the science telling us about the importance of lifestyle change in conjunction with these medications? What's the role there? Yeah, so we know that there is no medication that's going to improve our overall diet quality or get us to move more or sleep better or shift to a positive, more positive mindset. And so the FDA recommends that these medications be paired with a lifestyle modification program that encompasses this more holistic, healthy lifestyle approach because we want to develop these healthy habits for the long term. Whether you continue these medications um, over the course of your life, which is what the FDA recommends, or for whatever reason, because of insurance or because you and your healthcare provider decide it's the best course of action for you um, in case you ever stop the medications. And there is a lot of discussion, I know, about being on these medications long-term, what do we know and what do we not know about the long-term use of these? Yeah, so the FDA uh, recommends long-term use. You know, we have evolved very much our thinking of obesity over the last several decades. We now recognize that obesity is a very complex, multifactorial uh, disease. It's a chronic condition. And like other chronic conditions, uh, it requires long-term care and treatment. And if pharmacotherapy is going to be part of that treatment, then that would be, ideally, you would use it over the long term. The medication's only going to work as long as you take it. So we know, based on the data, that the medications appear to be very efficacious and safe, but we know that if you stop taking the medication, your weight is likely to come back. I think that what, you know, these medications have done is just further highlighted 
the biological basis of obesity. And what these medications do is they target some of the the factors in your gut and in your brain that drive the development of obesity in the first place. And what's so exciting to see and what we hear from from patients is that for the first time in their life, they they the mental chatter around food is decreased and that allows them the opportunity to engage in healthier habits because they have the the mental space to do so. So these drugs really can be foundational for helping patients adhere to the healthy habits over the long term. What we see over and over from different diet interventions, putting people on diets that have names, is that, you know, they... They, they often work and then maintenance is the really difficult part for, for most people. So we can definitely understand from the, the biological perspective of, you know, what these are bringing about, what changes these are bringing about to brain and digestion, that it makes sense that these would provide some long-term solutions to sticking with a, a healthy lifestyle for, for your whole life. I think it makes a lot of sense. When when people ask about getting off of these medications, right? My insurance doesn't cover this. This is super expensive. What kind of you know things can we can we tell people realistically? Is it is it a definite that when people stop these medications they gain all the weight back? I mean, what what are we seeing when people come off of them? So based on the research studies, it looks like after folks get off the medications within about a year, they're gaining about two thirds of the weight back. So, uh, you know, I think what patients can do, what we hear a lot, the reason why people are getting off the medications is because their insurance will no longer cover it. And these medications are cost prohibitive for most people, you know, ranging from $800 to $1,400 a month out of pocket. That's just not doable for you know the average person to pay. So my suggestion to them would be to, you know, talk with their healthcare provider, are there other medications that could be a good fit? So for example, doing like a fentramine to pyramate combination, which is, you know, without insurance, it's between usually $100 and $200 a month, that can be more manageable or if the patient and healthcare provider feels that you know, they're ready to get off medication completely, then ensuring that they have the support they need through a behavioral weight management program that can help facilitate those healthy habits related to diet and physical activity, but also components like street uh, sleep and stress management. I mean, I think we need to bring in a little bit of it's sometimes it's not all very positive, right? So these folks can have side effects when on the GLP-1 agonists. Like you mentioned, Michelle, it delays gastric emptying, right? So it slows the way that your digestive system metabolizes the food. So you feel full all the time, right? So these folks often have a lot of nausea. If they eat too much, they can have some vomiting. Sometimes they drink way less water because they're just like so full, they get really constipated. So, you know, people who have a history of pancreatitis or some anomaly with the pancreas, gallbladder issues, people who already have a diagnosis of gastroparesis, I mean, it's not the perfect fit for them. And 
which are basically the only reasons not to start it. Those are the un- contraindications. There, there were some studies done in rodents, right? So it's not been borne out in humans, but there's still that that warning about if you have a history of medullary thyroid cancer or or MEN syndromes that you want to stay away from starting those medications. But those are really the only contraindications. There are the medications like the fentramine topiramate, but those folks shouldn't have cardiovascular disease. And sometimes really the obesity, overweight, and cardiovascular um, comorbidities go hand in hand. So it does take a very thoughtful provider to really sort of counsel and think about the patient as a whole and sort of all of the other angles when you start a new medication, especially for weight loss. Yeah, and to to build on that a little bit, you know, I think um, people are hearing about these medications so much on social media, and they're hearing about you know celebrities being on on these medications. So I think a lot of people have the misconception that like, hey, if I want to lose weight, then then I should seek out this this medication, but there's very strict guidelines for who qualifies for these medications. It's for folks with a BMI over 30 or a BMI over 27 with a qualifying health condition like diabetes or or hypertension. And so it's really important to stress that these medications are not for people who want to lose, you know, five or 10 pounds. So that way, you know, they can fit into one size dress smaller for their high school reunion or whatever it is. These medications are for the chronic condition of obesity and they're not meant to be used as like a jump start or like I said to to lose a small amount of weight. Right. And and definitely the influence of social media has been huge on this, but there's also been a backlash on social media. How do we think about the the backlash and why do we think there's so much of it? I think that obesity is a really stigmatized condition. There's so much weight stigma and discrimination aimed at people because of their weight. And weight stigma can result in everything from the development of obesity to stress, to decreased quality of life, to mental health challenges, because people really internalize this this weight stigma, um, in part because of the cultural misconception we have that weight is a matter of personal responsibility and individual behavior change. And I think what these medications are doing is they're really highlighting that biological basis of obesity. And that's why these medications make a difference. But unfortunately, the the mainstream media messaging continues to be largely focused on this quote unquote individual responsibility. And my hope is that, you know, this is going to change over, over the long term. But People living in larger bodies right now are still unfortunately really facing a great deal of, of stigma. And they're they're stigmatized if they stay, you know, at a higher weight, but now they're being stigmatized against if they're trying to seek out medication. So people are kind of put in this really hard place where they're damned if they do and damned if they don't. And I I I'm seeing more people being outspoken about the biological drivers of obesity. And I hope that as a society, we continue to actively fight weight bias and discrimination because it's absolutely unacceptable. Absolutely. And and Michelle, I know you've researched in this area the impact of weight stigma on people. We know weight stigma has an effect on weight. We know some of the health outcomes of living in a larger body might 
be related to weight stigma and discrimination. Is there some more you can you can add to that piece? And you know, it's really important for us as uh, as primary care providers to be aware of those kinds of of biases within medicine too. Yeah, so I think the the effectiveness of the medications such as DL, GLP-1s really demonstrate that significant physiological underpinning in the development of obesity. So when people are getting access to these medications, it often changes their experiences around food and it's helping patients recognize that it's not about willpower, but it's about addressing these biological contributors to obesity. So my perspective is that GLP-1s, when combined with an evidence-based behavioral weight management program, they really have this opportunity to optimize health and overall wellness for those living with obesity. And honestly, those of us who have been in the field for a long time, like you, Dr. Walsh, and you, Dr. Ivan, you know, we're all really excited about the development and the opportunity to see our patients create this more neutral feeling towards food and, and see them reduce that chatter in their brain and, and you know, attenuate cravings and see the quieting of obsessive thoughts around food. But it's so important to remember that going on these medications, it's not a shortcut or the quote unquote easy way out. It's treating a chronic condition and it's no different than taking a statin for high cholesterol or medication for any other chronic condition. Absolutely. Well, the other thing about our our practice is that we take care of people across the whole lifespan. So Dr. Ivan's a family medicine physician. I get to talk to all ages, helping with, with newborn feeding as well as elders. So what kind of things can, uh, for example, parents do to contribute to a healthier weight environment at at home? It's such a great question, Dr. Walsh. So I think one of the most important things is how are we talking about weight and how are we talking about health with our children and within our families? So we've recently published some data. Um, the project was led by Dr. Rebecca Pohl from UConn around weight talk between um, parents and children. And what we heard from the kids is the majority of them don't want their parents talking to them about weight. Talking about weight oftentimes will, they report, make them feel embarrassed. It can make them feel shame. Um, and so what they report that they do want their parents to do is to talk to them about health. How can we improve our health? and for the parents to model the behaviors that they want their kids to be engaging in. So if you want your kid to be eating more fruits and vegetables, then they're probably going to want to see you eating more fruits and vegetables. If you think your child needs to be more active, well, as a family, let's go on a family walk after dinner. Let's go take the dog out. Let's go on a bike ride. Um, and I think it's really important that if in a family member you have one child or you know, not all of your children are struggling with their weight to never, you know, point to just that child or make changes in the household for just the child who's struggling with their weight. At the end of the day, no matter what our weight is, we can all be healthier. You know, we can all improve our diet and making sure that it's a family affair and that nobody is getting singled out in any negative way. 
And the, the study that you're referring to is really interesting to me because it, it really went and asked the teenagers. And I don't remember really reading a study that they just went and asked the teenagers, no, really, how do you want to be talked to about your weight, if at all? And I love that what came out of it was lead with empathy and respect. And that's just an important message, I think, around all weight communication. And I think we all need to remember, and and I don't think that this just goes for kids. I think this goes for any conversation that we're having, you know, is it really beneficial to be commenting on people's weights or their body shape or size? Probably not. You know, we have such a, we have such an association of weight loss with being a positive thing in society. And if that's something that someone is actively seeking and they're under the care of a healthcare provider, it can be a very beneficial thing. But sometimes I think we need to remember that there's unintentional weight loss that sometimes occurs. And that weight loss can be a symptom of grief. That weight loss can be a symptom of depression and anxiety. It can be a symptom of underlying disease like cancer. And so being really careful on commenting on on people's body shapes or sizes in general. And if you're going to do so, like you said, Dr. Walsh, always coming at it with respect and empathy and compassion. What other things do you think that people in primary care should know about about weight talk or patients who want to talk to their doctors about weight? Is there any like better communication strategies we all could be using as, you know, we're all health consumers too? Right, absolutely. So I think when it comes to, um, as healthcare providers, talking with patients, we know from the research that people perceive the topic around weight to be a very sensitive and very vulnerable topic. So with patients, I have tended to ask permission, basically before diving into that topic, saying, hey, um, you know, is this something that you feel comfortable with me talking about with you today? And if they say yes, then proceeding to have the conversation around weight. But I think it's also really important to be respectful that sometimes patients aren't at a place where that's something that they're interested in discussing. And as a provider, engaging in that patient-centered care and being respectful of, of their decision. And if somebody's not interested in weight loss, then what are the things that, that we can focus on? You know, regardless of our weight status, we could all improve our diet. Okay, how can we incorporate more lean sources of protein and more fiber and more healthy fats into our diet? Um, how can we all move our bodies more in ways that bring us joy and that we enjoy so that way it can be sustainable over the long term? You know, checking in with our patients to see how how's life going? You know, how are you dealing with things? You know, how's stress? You know, and then what are you doing to to navigate that stress and providing helpful resources in, in that context as well? I was wondering if you would weigh in on some nutrition hot topics with us. What do we think about the shifting guidelines around protein? I can't tell you how many patients come into me talking about my trainer wants me to eat 150 grams of protein per day. And this is maybe some is a, an average sized person. There's been some changes. There's new research coming out in, in the area. What What's going on with protein? Yeah. So for patients who are on GLP-1s, I think protein is definitely going to be an essential, essential component that they want to focus on so that way they can retain that lean muscle mass during weight loss. 
But for the majority of patients that we see who are not going to be on a GLP-1, um, you know, as Americans, on average, we're all getting enough protein. That's not actually a macronutrient that we tend to not get enough of. If protein is something that you want to prioritize, then really focusing on lean sources of protein. And if you really are hoping to go heavy on the protein side, then making sure that you're incorporating a pretty significant uh, proportion of that being from plant-based proteins. Great. And, you know, the this brings us back to the GLP-1s. There has been talk about these medications causing muscle loss. What do you think about that controversy that's been brought up? There is data from the STEP trials, which the STEP trials is where they tested out semaglutide, which is brand name Wagovi or Ozempic on weight loss. And they saw that in, they did DEXA scans, which is kind of like the gold standard of assessing body composition in a subset of those participants. And they looked at the the weight loss and the body composition changes in a subset of those receiving semaglutide and those receiving placebo. And what they saw was that in the participants who were getting semaglutide, that for their weight loss, about two-thirds of that weight loss was from fat mass, where about a third of that weight loss was from lean mass. Uh, so, And then if you look at relative to the placebo, their body composition changes were actually better than the placebo group in the STEP trial. So anytime we're seeing rapid weight loss, such as the case with GLP-1s or bariatric surgery, we want to ensure that we are promoting a diet that's higher in protein and that folks are engaging in resistance-based training. So that way there is going to hopefully be that preservation of, of lean body mass. But I've seen, unfortunately, some reports from folks saying, making some claims around lean mass that I have yet to see any evidence for. <laughs> yeah. Claiming that people are losing excessive amounts of lean mass is not what what happened in the trials. But we do know that with, with all weight loss, lean mass can drop. And so that comes back to the idea of protein resistance training being really important. Do any of the studies... Um, actually tell you how much they should be exercising? That's a very common question that I get because they people have been asking about the, the lean muscle loss. Because the, the studies that are being published, you know, um, including semaglutide and terzepatide are still somewhat new, there's not great, you know, consensus guidelines on any of this. But the general recommendation that I'm hearing from folks who are experts within physical activity, which I am not, is that resistance training occurring at least two times per week for at least 30 minutes each day, but even up to three times a week if possible. And that's that's part of, you know, when we talk about intensive lifestyle intervention or intensive lifestyle management, yeah, it's it's usually exercising each muscle group twice a week is the ideal. So maybe you divide that up into into three times or into four, but those are still part of our national guidelines around physical activity. So it's interesting that's that's what you're hearing as well. Anything else that patients are bringing to you, Dr. Yvonne, about these medications or about weight loss? 
two things, I hear a lot of hair loss. And so I think that happens anytime you have a big stress on the body, right? And so we can say illness, we could say extreme weight loss, we could say extreme stress, you get this hair loss. And we know it's a it's a process that that the bo- it's the body showing us that, that it's going through stress. So even though weight loss is the goal, that's just one of the ways that the body responds and then the hair should grow back, right? Within three to six months, it's a process called telogen effluvian. And we just sort of have to support folks there. Although you just want to make sure that they're taking in enough nutrients, right? And so sometimes there's not enough iron, there's not enough B vitamins, there's not enough just sort of things that are all the colors of the rainbow, like I like to say, whether it's kids or adults, I feel like there's value in that for everyone. So we'll check some labs related to that. And then the 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 hardest part um, is when they come to me with sort of I've reached my plateau right so that's like another buzzword with the GLP one agonist like I I'm taking it I'm at the max dose I haven't you know changed the way that I'm eating and it was working and now what um, so I I don't know if you have any experience with that Michelle you want to comment on it so. First, I'll touch on the hair loss piece. I agree completely, Dr. Ivan, that kind of like this eating the rainbow and a diversity of foods is so important. What we hear a lot from patients when they're on the GLP-1s is that because their hunger is so, and their appetite is so reduced that they think, oh, okay, well, I'm just not going to eat because I'm I'm not hungry. They don't have those normal physiological cues anymore to tell them to sit down and eat a meal. But in order to both establish those long-term healthy habits and to ensure adequate nutrition and calorie intake while you're on these GLP-1s, I do recommend that people continue to eat a regular meal schedule and to ensure that they are, you know, prioritizing those higher protein, lower fat foods, the lower fat because of the, you know, how the higher fat foods can prompt some of the GI symptoms like nausea. Um, So lower fat, but still healthy fats, and then making sure they're getting enough fiber and, and hydration. And if you're continuing to eat on somewhat regular meal timings, even if they're smaller meals, that can help prevent some, some of those components like the hair loss, for example, it may not, you know, you could be doing everything right. And like you're saying, Dr. Ivan, like it's still a big stressor on the body, but it's it's some things that you can put in place that can, can hopefully help you. In terms of the plateau, um, we do see that, that this is, you know, going to happen. Uh, the studies do show that people will plateau anywhere between usually nine and 12 months, but of course there's always significant variability. But continuing to maintain those healthy habits and continuing to maintain those weight loss medications if they're able to, and and really switching from a weight loss mindset to a weight maintenance mindset and continuing to focus on adequate nutrition and the physical activity components and ensuring that they're continuing to kind of have a balanced meal plan, you know, eating the rainbow, like you said. And definitely, uh, I see patients uh, more able to to maintain when they keep up that physical activity, because that seems to be really the the driving force when we've 
done the studies on people who kept weight off for 10 years, 15 years, they stay really physically active. I think it's around an hour a day of, of doing something active is really helpful for people for, for staying there. But yeah, I mean, plateaus happen, right, is, is something that we, we say a lot. I think of it as really one of the amazing features of human physiology that we're so able to closely match our energy intake and output, but it, it can be really frustrating for patients. So I think a lot of normalizing it is something that I do a lot and just saying like weight plateaus are really normal. It, we, ha- we are really adaptable organisms, animals, and metabolic adaptation happens and you know, explain, explaining the why I think really helps patients to keep going. No, I think you're, you're absolutely spot on Dr. Walsh. The normalization piece is so important because plateaus are a normal part of a weight loss journey. And there's three things that I tend to recommend to folks when they've hit a plateau. One is the physical activity component, like you mentioned. We know from our data, like the National Weight Control Registry and the Weight Watchers Success Registry, the findings from both of those really show that physical activity is an essential component of weight maintenance over the long term, but it can also help you get out of those plateaus. The second thing is to go to some back to self-monitoring behaviors. So that can be things like food tracking, that can be going back to regular weighing. Um, But the third component is also remembering that it's not just about a number on the scale and really celebrating those non-scale victories too. You know, how are your energy levels? How are you feeling? Like, you know, focusing on, yeah, you can go outside and like run around with your kids or your grandkids now. Or I, you know, was able to do something like, you know, hike this mountain that I wouldn't have been able to do six or 12 months ago. Um, So really focusing on things beyond the scale and really celebrating all of the great things that that have occurred. Some of our other non-scale victories are things like coming off of other medications. Right. So I celebrate that with with patients as well. What are we looking at next for these, these medications? What's coming out? So there's many medications that are in the pipeline. So I don't think we're going to end up in a place where we just have semaglutide and terzepatide as options. I think we're going to end up with many more options over the next five, 10 years. I'm really looking forward to a time when these medications uh, become generic and we can increase access to the medications for more people. And hopefully that payers will continue increasing access to them and insurance will continue, you know, to uh, increase the availability that they're providing to their patients for coverage of these, because these really can be game-changing medications and not only are affecting patient weight, but are affecting, like you're saying, Dr. Walsh, they're getting off all these other medications because by losing the weight, it's having an impact on their A1C, on their blood pressure, on their cholesterol. Uh, their knees don't hurt as much. Uh, you know, it's we know that obesity can affect all the different organ systems in our body. So it's a really exciting time. And I'm, I'm just hopeful to see us get more medications and medications that are more affordable so that way we can increase access to folks who, who need it. And then we always ask about the tie between 
uh, our experts field and longevity. So many of our patients are interested in living longer and healthier. This topic, of course, ties directly into that. But what's what's your take on, on longe- longevity? For me personally, it's not just about longevity, but it's about uh, the quality of those life years. And so, you know, a focus on holistic, healthy living, which of course includes things like diet and physical activity and sleep and stress management. But I think a component that's so often left out of the conversation is the importance of community and social supports. And it's one of the components that I I think is so amazing about the Weight Watchers community is that there we have um it's a social support network basically. You know, we have these connect groups as part of the program. But that goes so far beyond just the the wellness space, you know, making sure that we are, you know, engaging with our friends and our neighbors and our families and our loved ones and and building up our support networks, because those are also going to be a key component for long term health as well. Absolutely. Yes. Healthy relationship, healthy life. Wonderful. Anything else that I should have asked you since I'm the the pinch hitter (laughs) host today? No, I just, I really want to thank you, Dr. Walsh and Dr. Ivan for for having me today and really appreciate all you all do for, for your patience and for the care of folks in this space. So thank you. Thank you for listening to Inside Medicine, a private medical production. We hope we've inspired you to think differently about your health and the healthcare system. Please subscribe to our podcast and our medical dispatch, which you can find on our website, privatemedical.org. You can find the link in the show notes.